Hello, cinephiles, party people, and Proof Castilians, and welcome back to the Greg Proof's Film Club, curated by my wife, Jennifer, for tonight's fabulous Sunday matinee thriller feature from 1948, Carol Reed, written by the immortal Graham Greene, uh, The Fallen Idol, starring Sir Ralph Richardson. Thank you so much for coming out today and enjoying this with us. For those of you listening at home, this is the awesomest time ever to pour one out or light one up or whatever it is you're going to do to get through today's feature. This is our, we were trying to figure out, Jennifer and I, um, oh my goodness, the world is open here. Uh, whether, uh, if this was our second or third um, Carol Reed picture, and I think it's our second, we showed the third man a couple of years ago, and Graham Greene, um, the immortal British writer, and Carol Reed teamed up three times. This picture, today's Fallen Idol, uh, the, the year after this, they made the third man, which is either a post-war noir or a, a pre-psychedelic uh, paranoia movie and or a Cold War thriller and or a combination or an, a, a partial Orson Welles movie. Uh, it serves all three purposes uh, and, and is a classic. And then they came back and made Our Man in Havana with uh, Alec Guinness uh, later. And Alec Guinness in that one plays one of his you know, we think about Alec Guinness so much and you always, I, I'm not, I don't know what you guys think because you're probably younger than I am. Who isn't? <laughs> and um, uh, my guess is you probably think of him as Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars. Well, of course, I think of him as uh, the colonel in um, Bridge on the River Kwai or even fantastically miscast because, um, oh, I've left my piece of paper backstage. Hey, can someone grab that piece of paper that I left backstage? Thank you. Uh, uh, he plays, um, thank you, you King Faisal in the movie Lawrence of Arabia because, as you know, uh, the story of Hollywood is to always never cast people uh, that are the actual race they're playing. And as I've said so often on the Greg Proops Film Club, and this has been one of the tenets of our show since the beginning, um, the purpose of Hollywood for over 100 years was to show the world that everyone in America is Scottish-Irish. And that we're very, very proud of that. Um, even though the film industry was invented by Jews from shtetls in Europe, they, they really felt like that Scottish Irish thing was a big winner. In any case, in that movie, uh, uh, Our Man in Havana, Alec Guinness plays an inconceivable sleazeball, which is something he actually specialized in uh, throughout his career, um, more than you would think. Uh, in Tunes of Glory, he plays a, a stodgy, Scottish sort of military um, staunch rigid asshole uh, who won't bend when he meets uh, the fabulous John Mills and Star Wars which awesomely Alec Guinness didn't care for and this is what I love about the perversity of being a performer and or being in show business is that often the things that people are there uh, most popular for are the things they detest with every fiber of their being and or could really give a shit about um, having said that, I've been lucky enough to meet a few stars and mention to them uh, things that they loved doing. And that always, always feels like a home run, you know. Uh, for instance, I don't know if you guys remember an awesome actor named Cleavon Little, um, who was in a movie called Blazing Saddles, where he was the star. And he was also on a, a television show called Temperatures Rising. And he was a very sexy um, black man uh, from the 70s with a really glib and fantastically humorous demeanor. 
And everybody knew him from Blazing Saddles, which was, of all things, a last minute replacement for Richard Pryor, because Richard Pryor, due to something that happened with the studio and or Mel Brooks, uh, who had written the picture with Mel Brooks, didn't star in it with Gene Wilder, so they got Cleavon Little. And I remember meeting him at a party in San Francisco and saying to him, um, I love, everyone was talking about Blazing Saddles and stuff, and he was being really nice. We were all outside smoking, this was those days. And uh, on the, uh, uh, in San Francisco, so it was a shotgun flat, and in the back one of those staircases that ran up the top, the back of the building. And we were out there smoking and stuff, and everybody's telling him how much they like Blazing Saddles, and he was talking about it and shit. Because he was in town, fantastically, doing I'm Not Rappaport with Judd Hirsch uh, from Taxi. And uh, he, uh, I turned to him and I said, I loved you in a movie called Vanishing Point, which is a really obscure, like 1970, I want to say, existential road movie where Barry Newman is given a, a Dodge Challenger in, I think, San Francisco, and they go, you need to have it in Denver in like 48 hours. He takes a fistful of speed, like this on camera, like that, eats the speed, gets in the Challenger, and drives like a bat out of hell, and that's the whole movie. During the movie, he's chased by the police, and uh, uh, because the police are chasing him, a black blind DJ takes up his cause. At his <laughs> this is what I love about the 70s. And Cleveland Little plays that black blind DJ, and his name's Super Soul. And the name of the station, because they're in a hillbilly place, is K-O-W, Cow. And because Barry Newman's character's named Kowalski, they eventually put a banner below it so that it's Station Kowalski. And uh, so I said, uh, and it, the movie has no explanation why he's been given the job driving this car there, what's going on with the car, why he's so determined to deliver the car against the odds face down the cops and the law and, and get in trouble. There's a naked girl on a motorcycle in one scene. Yeah, thank you for going with. That is exactly the right reaction to all uh, Antonioni-esque touches from those days. And uh, I turned to him and I said, I loved you in Vanishing Point. And I swear to you, Cleavon Little turned to me and said, that's my favorite thing that I've ever done. Aww. Yeah, and I was, I was so chuffed and delighted and pleased that I said something cool uh, and that I didn't go, you know, when you meet William Shatner or whatever, you can say Star Trek and he's going to be like, yeah. But if you go like, I loved you in Barbary Coast, he's going to be like, or the Brothers Karamazov or something, then he's going to be like, that was a challenge. <laughs> Thank you. So I met William Shatner in Scotland years ago. We were doing a game show called, yeah, you're going to love this one, you guys, Space Cadets. And it, <laughs> you know, TV has always been as imaginative as you think it was. <laughs> now with the writer's strike going on and a lot of reality TV, you're like, you know, TV might be kind of in a dark period. TV's been in a dark period since it went on the air in the 40s. I, I think that's why it was called in the 60s a vast wasteland at one point. Um, there's been a million great TV shows, and there's been a thousand zillion great TV stars, no question, and TV writers. Um, as for the people who make TV and have owned TV since it began, <laughs> um, they could own a funeral parlor or a candy factory or a furniture store 
or they could just be lying in a shallow ditch inhaling helium all day long and it really wouldn't matter to the world because that's been their input uh, into the creative process. I, I assure you at no point no one who owns a, a television entity went, you know what we should do? Really give voice to the poor. Um, that didn't happen in a meeting. Uh, no one in the 60s ever went, you know, I've noticed there's not a lot of black and Asian people on TV. We should really beef that up a little. Uh, and no one in the 80s went, we should have a bunch of sitcoms with women in them. Those things just simply happen because the tide of history, as they say, uh, is overwhelming. And in any case, uh, so I met William Shatner and I asked him, I said, Bill, um, how did you, who, who, who did you fly to England uh, with? And he said, I took Virgin, Greg. Virgin Airlines. And I said, they're nice, aren't they? And he went, yes, they're nice. And that was, he looks and talks exactly like he looks and talks on TV, which made him awesome beyond measure. On the show, he got up at one point and danced and kissed some of the other guys that were on the panel. And it, yeah, it was great. Uh, we had Walter Koenig on. We had all these sci-fi people on because it was a sci-fi show, as you might have gathered. Um, for uh, some of our nerdier people, Terry Pratchett from, from the Discworld. I knew I'd get a few of you. Terry Pratchett was on the show, uh, as well as Ed Bishop from the show uh, um, UFO. Uh, oh, yeah. No, it was a, we hit the highest heights. And uh, uh, on the other hand, Walter Koenig, who was a very lovely person and a marvelous uh, a performer, uh, I said to him, we were backstage, and he was in the makeup chair, and I said, Walter, I want to thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Someone who played it as indelible a character as Chekhov, and how popular you are with all of your fans for you to take time to do this. And he said, Greg... Chekhov is just one role I've done in a very long career. And I went, but it's wonderful that you're here. <laughs> I didn't want to go, I know, but it's the most popular thing you did, you see. Ergo, why you're here on the sci-fi show and why a bunch of Scottish people from Glasgow, which, by the way, Glasgow's like the, I don't know how to describe it, the Newark, New Jersey, the... <laughs> The Compton of Scotland. Like, you don't go to Glasgow and, like, breeze down the street and go, hey, how's it going, dude? Because someone's going to hit you with a bottle. Like, it's... The, last time I played there, there was a big graffiti that said, like, shite, fuck, gob, or whatever on the wall. And a milkshake exploded against the wall because someone had, while they were drinking a milkshake, become so angry that they stopped drinking the milkshake and decided to explode it against a wall. That's the kind of mental attitude people have in Glasgow. I'm tired of it being delicious. I'm tired of the chocolatiness. Fuck you, you fucking shite milkshake. <laughs> Boom. There was a, a, a merry-go-round, I mean a merry-go-round, a Ferris, what's the thing that goes up and down? A Ferris wheel. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> uh, it wasn't a carousel, it was a Ferris wheel. And they put it in the middle of Glasgow. And the middle of Glasgow is not exactly like the hanging gardens of Babylon. Uh, <laughs> It's a, it, it, I don't know if you've been to Pershing Square downtown. It's like Pershing Square without the glamour. And uh, there's office buildings all around. And then there's a very famous statue of, uh, I don't know who it is, a, a king or a, a, a captain of industry from the 19th century. And he's mounted. And on this statue's head is forever 
a traffic cone. Because at any point, someone has taken the cone and put it on their head. If the cone is removed, within minutes, there will be another cone on the head. There is no, if you see a picture of the middle of Glasgow, you'll see, well, they call it a bollard, right? A traffic bollard. They put the bollard on its head. So from the uh, 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 Ferris wheel that went up and down in the middle of this square, you can see office buildings where Scottish people were at working, having their lunch, and flipping you off as you went by them. <laughs> and then the other thing you could see was the traffic cone on the statue's head, and that was the entirety of going up and down. And I said to the audience in Glasgow, putting a Ferris wheel in the middle of Glasgow is like putting a Ferris wheel in the middle of Glasgow. <laughs> it, it doesn't really like bring the joy, it just accentuates the absolute tenor of uh, uh, the dimness of the future uh, th that Glasgow really brings to the fore. Having said that, they're the greatest audiences I've ever played for, and it's the only place I'm nervous. I never get nervous going on stage because I have uh, uh, shields of iron and an enormous ego. And the thing, I have the secret that all performers have that a lot of people who aren't performers don't know, and that's that we really don't care if we succeed or fail. Hearing our own voice is so mesmerizing to us that it's like smoking opium out of a dead owl's skull. There's so much of a thrill of just simply hearing my own voice resonate around a room that whether or not you react is like superfluous to the day, if you get what I'm getting at. I would be up here alone. In essence, I am. So there's that. Um, uh, what does this have to do with the movie, I hear you ask? Don't rush me. <laughs> this is a journey, you guys. You can go to any old fucking film thing, at any old goddamn film thing in Los Angeles or Hollywood or whatever, and they're going to get up, and the first person's going to ask a really inane question. When you were making this movie, did you intend it? No, shut up. Making a movie is horrible. It's really hard to do. It's difficult to organize. How do you get money? How does the movie get made? If you find a writer that you're compatible with and that writer and you get along and if you find a cast that's awesome, it's almost all an accident by design. Uh, uh, the, the greatest, greatest films that you can think of, I assure you there were people working on them going, this is a piece of shit and I want off. I'm telling you, during Citizen Kane, there were lighting people who were like, this lighting is never going to work. Um, in any case, not to be down about everything, because we're here on a Sunday afternoon, and this is one of my favorite times to watch a picture. Um, if I was going to pick a Sunday afternoon picture, of course, Jennifer picked this one, and it's a brilliant choice, because it, um, it's stunningly written, beautifully shot, and like all Carol Reed movies, um, he's going to dutch the camera on you there to make sure you're off balance, and you're never going to know where anyone's coming from. Carol Reed is from the um, Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka school of ethos, which is to say, you don't know if I'm lying because, oh, did you know if I was lying? I might have been lying. Kidding. Oh. Um, yeah, so off balance is where you're going to be. Um, Sunday afternoon is one of the greatest times to see a movie. I grew up in San Carlos, California, which is a small white principality south of San Francisco. Uh, the urbanity and uh, um, uh, cosmopolitan nature of San Francisco could not bleed the 30 miles down the peninsula into our town fast enough. So we often took field trips to San Francisco to experience things like poverty and black people and openly gay people. And uh, San Carlos is super white when I lived there. 
And then I've been doing jokes about it for 100 years. I'm from the whitest place on earth, San Carlos, California, home of the Plain Yogurt Festival. And I was doing one a couple years ago in San Francisco, and a person from San Carlos came up to me and went, it's not as white as it was. And I'm like, don't even fucking start with me. I love when white people defend themselves because it's so useless. It's just, honestly, it's like listening to a Republican congressperson talk. They're not going to say anything substantive. They're going to repeat the same stupid shit that you know isn't true. And that's what today's theme is. Um, there's, as Ralph Richardson says in the movie, there's lies and there are lies. And she says, what do you mean by that? And he says, some lies are a kindness. And some lies are just lies. And, uh, oh, kittens. Is it really that time already? Oh. I know, right? Um, Ralph Richardson was a brilliant stage actor. And then he was a brilliant film actor. And the first picture I remember seeing him in was Dr. Zhivago because my mother loved Omar Sharif. And we went to see it at a Cinerama Dome in San Jose, down south of San Carlos. And it cost money, and you had assigned seats. It was the first time I'd ever been in a theater where they actually told you where to sit. And my mother would have sat through anything that had Omar Sharif in it. You could, it would have been like a Warhol film called Sharif, and it could have been eight hours of Omar Sharif just going like this. And my mother would have been, that movie was awesome. Uh, although she would have never used the word awesome. She'd have gone, Shug, I love that Omar Sharif. And uh, um, if you've ever seen Dr. Zhivago, it is almost an eight-hour Warhol film. It's long. Of all the David Lean films, I think it probably has the least pep, if, that, if that's the right word. Although I don't think Pasternak was looking for pep when he wrote the movie, or when he wrote the book. Um, in any case, uh, uh, Ralph Richardson plays the father in that. And then I was a little older, and I was at the Sunday afternoon movies, where we used to go in San Carlos. There was three movie theaters, the Tivoli, the Laurel, and the Carlos. And the Carlos, or the Laurel, uh, um, was 50 cents, so my mother would give me a dollar. And with that dollar, you could get a box of flicks, which were a Ghirardelli chocolate that was shaped like a little Hershey's Kiss that came in a tube. Or you could get Red Hots that had a cellophane window, so when you were done with the Red Hots, you could blow on the box, and it made a horrible trumpeting noise, like, like that, which everyone did. You could also load up your mouth with the Red Hots and fire them at the screen which made an awesome noise, which I didn't do because I felt it was a waste of candy. Um, but then I was there, I was a six-year-old wearing a suit at the movie. So um, they raised the price from 50 cents to 75 cents for the, mus- the, musical, of, of, uh, the musical of Dr. Doolittle. Yeah, that was the line of demarcation. It had been 50 cents up till then, and after that, the matinees were 75 cents. Because I guess the rental fee for Dr. Doolittle was so huge or something? I don't know if you've ever seen the musical of Dr. Doolittle, but it's not really that worth it. Uh, it's, it's Anthony Newley and Leslie Brookhuis. The, the songs are cute. Um, Rex Harrison at one point sings to a seal for a really long time. Like there's a seal, a sea lion, and he holds its head like this and he goes, What, what? It is. I'm about to do it for you, bitch. It, it, when I look in your eyes, I see the wisdom of the world in your eyes. That's how Rick Harrison sings to a seal. And uh, it is a beautiful song. Uh, and then everybody on every talk show did all of the songs from Dr. Doolittle forever and ever. I don't think it was a big smash hit, uh, the movie. Um, but we went to see Tales from the Crypt, 
which I think might have been the first Tales of the Crypt movie. Uh, it was a British picture, and uh, Ralph Richardson is the Crypt Keeper in it. And Ralph Richardson has this fantastic, as you'll see, um, he, he was brilliant at uh, acting. He was a wonderful actor. He was also marvelous at comedy. And Ralph Richardson had this one thing that he would do when he would look at people to let them know that he thought they were the stupidest thing that ever fucking walked the earth. <laughs> Ralph Richardson has this look that he does. So I remember loving him as the Crypt Keeper because they gave him a cowl and everything. And then he's in a movie called Oh Lucky Man with um, uh, uh, Malcolm McDowell, which is one of those picaresque boy coming of age, oh my God, it's going on and on forever, uh, uh, Lindsay Anderson movies, which means it's diffuse and epically long and has a good soundtrack. And um, as I recall in that movie, Ralph Richardson um, is bidding goodbye to Malcolm McDowell, his protege, and wishing him well as he makes his way in the world. And before he leaves, Ralph Richardson goes, boy, and Malcolm McDowell turns, and Ralph Richardson goes, don't die like a dog in the street. It's a, it was a joke. But I didn't expect you to laugh at it because I didn't give it enough context. Uh, so there's lies and there's lies, like I say. Ralph Richardson, I think, was a, a master at deception and diffusion on screen and not letting you know what his real emotions are. If you ever get a chance to see Sidney Lumet's Long Day's Journey in tonight with him and Catherine Hepburn and Jason Robards and uh, I've just blanked on his name, Jennifer Dean Stockwell. Dean Stockwell. Um, it's a four-hander. It's the Eugene O'Neill play in its entirety. It's real long. And Ralph Richardson plays the bombastic father. And he's absolutely shocking in it. I don't know what your relationship with your parents was like, but it was sort of like spending the weekend uh, visiting your relatives, that movie. Um, Ralph Richardson was a stage actor, and he rode a motorcycle around London even in his 70s. He was kind of a, a free spirit of his own. At one point, he was in a play in the 40s, and he stopped the show, and he said, is there a doctor in the house? Right? Which you've always heard about actors doing. Finally, a doctor went, yes, I'm a doctor. What can I do for you? And Ralph Richardson from the stage went, this is a terrible play, isn't it, doctor? <laughs> he actually stopped the show just to tell everyone how awful he thought the fucking play he was in was, which makes me love him more than life itself. Um, on the subject of lies, and then we'll get right to this. And by the way, the, uh, a lot of Carol Reed's work also has to do with the subterfuge uh, of what the government is telling you, what people are telling you, people's motives, why they do the things they do, the awful things they do, and the reason and rationale they give you. Mm. And that's what this picture is about. There's a writer's strike going on this week. And uh, as, we do, as we record this, of course, time will march on and the writer's strike will get resolved. David Zaslav uh, is... Um, the head of a gigantic entertainment corporation that owns a bunch of other gigantic uh, entertainment corporations. By the way, the reason why nothing's in production right now is not because the writers have struck. The reason is the studios won't give the writers more money. That's why nothing's in production. So when you watch TV or read a paper and they're like, oh my God, the writers are on strike, everything stopped. The writers did not stop anything. The writers said... If you give us more money, 
if uh, uh, you stop uh, threatening to use um, uh, uh, IA, AI, uh, um, artificial intelligence, and stop threatening to use in perpetuity anything that an actor says, which is the next step that they're talking about. The production houses are talking about, uh, uh, for instance, this thing that I've said today, they could just take all of the words I've ever used and make it into another thing a million different ways using computers. And that's what they want to do so that they don't have to pay people. So they don't have to pay the writers who wrote the original words for the actors to say because actors don't make up their own lines except on the show I'm on. And <laughs> where we actually make up our own. And by the way, we've never been paid as writers. I've never received a writing fee and I've written everything I've said on that show for 31 fucking years. Um, I'm not complaining. Here I am. But I mean, it, there's, there's lies and there's lies. One lie is that uh, a work stoppage is started by the people who won't be paid. It's not. The last writer's strike 15 years ago was the producers. This writer's strike is the producers. David Zaslav was on CNBC's television show or show Squawk Box. And he said that he thought that the writers would come back because, and I'm quoting here, I'm going to read it to you because I want you to get it right. I think a love for the business and the love for working. Writers are forced into rooms and sometimes not anymore into a room. Writers are also let go from shows after a couple of episodes now. Rather than keeping the staff together to finish a show, they'll get them to write part of it and then they'll just eject you. Writers don't get proper health care. Writers don't get proper food. Writers aren't credited properly. Writers do not get residuals for all of the streaming things that they write. Some writers live in poverty who have written famous shows that you know and love. They live in poverty. David Zaslav, who said that he thought a love for the business and for working will bring the writers back, made $250 million last year. Now, if I knew 500 writers, I could give them each, I think you see where I'm going with this. If I knew 250 writers, I could give them a million dollars each. If I knew 500, I could give them half a million dollars each, right? If I knew 1,000, I could give them each 250. Could you live if I gave you $250,000 right now? Could you live for a year if we met back up here next May 6th or whatever today is? 8th? I don't know what date it is. The 6th? I think it's May 6th. I think it's uh, Siete de Mayo. Um, uh, if we met in a year from now, do you think you would have spent the whole 250000 Maybe someone went, good for you. That's the spirit. I'll meet you in Beverly Hills and let's get fucking crazy. Um, but that's what I mean about there's lies and lies and there's things that people say. Um, everybody loves to work because we're artists and an artist needs work. Uh, like a producer needs to abuse um, women and underlings. It's part of the thing that keeps us going. If a producer can't make everyone around them feel awful and make all the women that work around them feel degraded, they can't get up in the morning. They can't smile. And a writer needs to know that there are going to be artists who say their words and directors that put stage those and the lighting technicians and, and, and every type of technician in the world and on the below the line people and the above the line people and everybody pop, come together to make something beautiful or try to make something beautiful. That's what the love of working is. But I don't need someone who makes $250 million to tell me that I need to love my work. I already love my work because I'm a human being with a soul, not a horrible, charred piece 
of black obsidian where the humanity once existed. <laughs> and so now I give you, from 1948, the Mordant classic by Carol Reed, written by Graham Greene, The Fallen Idol. <laughs> 